The opinions expressed in this podcast represent those of the medical speakers and not those of Beringer Ingelheim Pharmaceuticals Incorporated. Hi, and thank you for tuning into this podcast about improving the management of patients with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. My name is Erica Herzog. I am a pulmonologist and the director of the Interstitial Lung Disease Center of Excellence at Yale School of Medicine. I specialize in diagnosing and treating interstitial lung diseases, or ILDs, and idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, also called IPF. In our first episode, we started with a brief overview of ILDs and IPF with Dr. Marilyn Glassberg, focusing on ways to help healthcare providers recognize and refer patients with signs of potential IPF. On episode two, we discussed differentiating IPF from other ILDs with Dr. Paul Noble, with an emphasis on signs that point to ILDs with identifiable causes. Today, we will focus on how to manage the care of patients with IPF through disease, symptoms, and support-centered strategies, with an emphasis on how all of these components and various healthcare specialties work together to help the patient in their journey. Joining us for this conversation is Dr. Amy Olson, an expert pulmonologist specializing in interstitial lung disease, ILDs, and IPF. Dr. Olson, thank you for being here. Hi, thank you for having me. Um, I'm Dr. Olson. I'm an associate professor of medicine in the interstitial lung disease clinic here at National Jewish Health in Denver, Colorado. Dr. Olson, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Sure. We actually have a lot of material to cover, so why don't we just launch right in? Um, in terms of disease-centered management, of course, one of the big questions regards the, the new pharmacologic-approved therapies or the antifibrotics, and I know a lot of practitioners have many questions about these. So I think one of the most important questions is, how do you actually start these medications? Well, I think once you've established the diagnosis of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, that you need to discuss these medications with the patient. I think it's really important that they understand the side effects of the medications. Um, and that they understand that these medications aren't necessarily going to make them feel better, but may slow the disease process. I think they really have to have realistic expectations about the drugs um, in order for them to stay on these drugs. And so that's typically how we start these medications is with a uh, discussion with the patient. I guess the other big question that I get a lot from both my colleagues who aren't ILB specialists as well as uh, community practitioners, is how do you actually decide that you're going to treat the patient? I know that um, there's some concern about starting too early. I know there's some concern that some patients might be too sick. Uh, how do you handle that, that decision in a patient, say, who's very well or in a patient who's, who's very ill? So I think in the patients who are very, who are well, um, again, it's, it's, sitting down and having a discussion with them, we know the disease course in general for patients with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, that this disease does progress. Um, and so I don't think that there is a too early um, from my perspective, but there may be a too early from the patient's perspective. And I guess uh, if a patient decides not to go on therapy because they aren't having symptoms at that time, that's an active decision too, and it needs to then be readdressed at, at follow-up visits. And I guess with too late, you know, patients that are being transitioned into more uh, comfort care, palliative care, that, that's too late to start the, the medication. 
Yeah, I would definitely agree. I mean, we have some patients with very advanced disease who are, are still relatively functional, and I think um, in those patients, giving them a shot at medication is appropriate. But um, when, when patients are really end stage, I agree with you that um, probably the focus should be maybe not so much on pharmacologic therapy, but on some of the other issues that we'll discuss in a while. How, how do you handle trials? We have a very active uh, patient community who's very, very interested in getting into trials. And uh, how do you manage that with your patients? How do, how do you talk to them about it? Yeah, so we have a lot of clinical trials, too. And um, we talk to the patients because most of the trials that we have do uh, allow for background therapy uh, with the antifibrotics. And we say to them that we have found medications that appear to slow the course of this disease, but we still have no cure. We have our clinical trials posted, and we talk to them about the clinical trials. We have a research coordinator that's in our office workroom so that she can help get patients involved in clinical trials. And then we see a lot of patients from out of state that come here for their evaluation. And so those patients we refer to the Pulmonary Fibrosis Foundation website as uh, they can now type in their zip code and figure out what clinical trials are close to them. So uh, how do you handle the clinical trials at Yale? Uh, we do exactly the same thing uh, that, that you all do. So because we allow, because most of the trials are allowing background therapy, I think it's a really great opportunity for patients to um, be able to get access to potentially uh, additional disease-modifying drugs. I think our patient population is uh, pretty savvy. I think what can be harder sometimes is uh, the, the practitioners in the community. They might not have um, access to how to refer in for a trial. I think your advice about the PFF website is a good one, and I think that that's really helped expanded access to trial for, for patients. And I think the other thing to, for, to remember is some patients will think that a trial rules them out for transplant. Lung transplantation can be uh, potentially life-saving for some patients, so it's, it's important for patients to realize that they should be exploring all of their options and not just going one, one or another. Yes. So, so tell me about transplant. I, I think a lot of what we see is patients thinking that they're too well for transplant or that they don't want to undergo it. I, I know that there's I know that the idea in ILD is changing that that patient should be referred relatively early. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, um, I think that part of that comes from the uh, what we've learned recently that we don't we can't predict a patient's clinical course, um, and patients can have acute exacerbations of, of disease that are quite severe. So the new recommendations are that patients are. Uh, to, if appropriate, to be referred for lung transplantation um, at the time of diagnosis. And that doesn't mean that the patient is listed at that time, but at least they know the patient. Uh, they know that the patient has the right support systems, and they've identified any comorbidities that may hamper a transplant. And so I've heard transplant physicians, and I've heard yourself say this uh, just recently, that transplantation is really trading one disease for another. What does that actually mean? Yeah, so when you're talking to patients who are relatively healthy and, and they say they want a lung transplant, it really is trading one disease for another. So 
you're treating idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis for uh, the diseases uh, and, and issues that come along with lung transplant, the lungs are an immune organ, and so uh, they, these patients are put on immunosuppressive drugs, and so they can have infections, so they're battling typically infections versus rejection, um, and so there are issues uh, with, with having a lung transplant. Yeah, I, I guess I can see why some patients might be hesitant about it, but I, I agree with you that it's a really important therapy and opportunity for patients, and so everybody, it should be at least addressed, and if there's any interest at all, refer them as, as early as possible. So what about comorbid conditions now? Um, I know that IPF doesn't exist in a vacuum, and many, many of our patients are older, and so they have other illnesses that go along with their disease. What are the most common ones that you see, and how do you manage them? I think the most common uh, comorbid condition that we see is probably gastroesophageal reflux disease. And I think that sometimes it may be silent. It may present differently. Uh, it may present with just a cough, and uh, there's non-acid reflux. So we typically do do impedance studies so we can measure both the acid and non-acid reflux and then treat both parts of that disease uh, with our gastroenterology service. Um, I think that's really important, uh, and, and I know we need to have more studies on the role of, of reflux therapies and um, uh, in IPF. Uh, but typically, if we do that, we can help with the cough. And it's been hypothesized to promote lung fibrosis. And so at this point, we're pretty aggressive uh, with treating the reflux. And, I, and again, when we do that, I think uh, um, we get better control of the cough, which may be a significant problem in some patients. We do exactly the same thing. And I agree with you that getting a handle on the reflux um, can really help with cough, which is probably one of the most bothersome symptoms, as we'll talk about in a little while. So we work. We we also work very closely with gastroenterology for uh, for testing and anti-acid therapies, as well as sometimes more aggressive approaches are needed. So totally agree. And I think I think another comorbid condition that we see uh, uh, that we're really aware of is we know that this patient population has a higher incidence of coronary artery disease. And so I think it's really important when patients um, come in and are short of breath that we're sure that the breathlessness is due to the IPF and that there isn't um, a coronary artery disease in the background. And some of the risk factors for IPF, such as smoking, are also risk factors for, for coronary artery disease. So I think we need to, we're, we're pretty uh, uh, cautious uh, and, and really want to ensure that we have ruled that out as not a uh, comorbid condition, and if it is, it's something we can treat. So, again, we work closely then with cardiology uh, to ensure that coronary artery disease is addressed as part of the patient's comprehensive evaluation. Yes, I totally agree with you on that. And I, your point about it being something that's relatively fixable that can improve longevity and, and patient symptoms I, I think is a good one. Uh, sometimes people do lose fat lose sight of the fact that other things can happen to your patient besides fibrosis, and somebody will come in with fibrosis and everybody gets myopic about the, the interstitial lung disease, but it's, it's possible there's something completely different going on. So I think that's a good point. You know what I see a lot of is sleep apnea. What about, do you all have a lot of that out there? Yes, we see a lot of sleep apnea, and I think the thing that's hard and what we've learned about sleep apnea, uh, not only clinically but through the literature, is that these patients uh, it, they do have a higher incidence of it, and they don't present with the same symptoms. 
And so um, we do script, we do tend to screen a lot of people initially with nocturnal oximetry studies and then move forward for treatment of obstructive sleep apnea. Uh, and I think that it's, it's important to manage that comorbidity too. Uh, as you know, we can see some mild increases that with, uh, in pulmonary hypertension with untreated sleep apnea and, and um, some cognitive decline if we don't treat it. So I think there are multiple reasons. Uh, to treat uh, underlying obstructive sleep apnea, I think it can be hard uh, to elicit those symptoms because they may not have the classic symptoms. I sometimes find it's difficult to get the sleep doctors on board with um, treating because patients might have very mild disease that mm-hmm. uh, might be recommended in another patient for weight loss or, or sort of don't start the CPAP. But I think that I, I usually try to push to start the CPAP early um, even if the sleep apnea is, is pretty mild, because I, I, I've seen some patients respond very well. Yeah, and I think that, you know, there's some, there's conflicting data, but there is some data that there may be microaspiration that goes on with those apneic events. And again, if we are hypothesizing that, you know, anything that gets in the lungs that may cause damage may promote the fibrotic process, then again, I think it's another thing to, to really target. Right, definitely agree. So now moving into symptoms, we just talked about GERD. We are now just talking about microaspiration with sleep apnea. Um, one of the biggest symptoms that patients with IPF have is cough. I mean, they also complain of shortness of breath and some other symptoms, but I, I think cough is usually the number one most annoying, most common complaint. How do you handle cough? So I, I think a lot of it comes from reflux. So I'm biased there. So I really, unlike you, we do do the impedance studies. Um, we also look for other common causes of cough, um, including post-nasal drip, um, aspiration. Um, and then the other thing is some of these patients do have, with the traction bronchiectasis, do really need airway clearance. And I think that we've started to move um, towards using uh, bronchial hygiene regimens uh, now in these patients. Um, uh, to help them expectorate the sputum so that it's not constantly occurring throughout the day. So I think that's been something uh, new that we've we've kind of moved towards recently. And you? Uh, we have the same issue, and I'm actually seeing more sputum production. I remember when I first started in ILD, the, the class of teaching was that, oh, patients with IPF have a dry cough, but I, I think that not all patients read the textbook, and I have a large amount of sputum producers that do benefit from um, aggressive attempts to, to really get their sputum under control. So I, I do a lot of bronchial hygiene as well. What about if those things fail and they're still coughing? Are there any medications or pharmacologic interventions you try? I do try uh, some of the cough suppressants. I don't find them to be that effective. Uh, but have you some of the cough suppressants? And I think that, you know, low-dose narcotics um, in a cough syrup do tend to help uh, the cough uh, in, in IPS if I can't uh, get it under control in other ways. Mm-hmm. I found that sometimes when I'm trying to when, – when patients are trying to enter trials and they're coughing too much to complete their PFTs, really trying to get their, their cough under control so they're going to be eligible to get into that, that study um, – requires maybe a little bit of low-dark narcotic, sometimes we'll try some ginger tea or lozenges, and we can usually get the cough under control short-term, but I think long-term, cough is probably one of our biggest areas of unmet need. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree. 
What about shortness of breath? After cough, I think shortness of breath is the next most common symptom that people have. How do you handle that with your patients? So, one, I, as part of our discussion, I really do want patients to have their own pulse oximeter. Um, I want them to make sure that they maintain their oxygen saturation, you know, greater than 90%. And it is difficult when patients um, uh, require more and more oxygen to be to be mobile, but but um, we want to make sure that they have the appropriate oxygen therapy. Um, I think that that helps relieve the breathlessness, and I also think that pulmonary rehabilitation can be fantastic um, in helping uh, patients be less breathless and keep them conditioned, um, which I think is very important. I think sometimes they're breathless because they just haven't done anything, because they've been short of breath, because they haven't had oxygen, and it's a very vicious cycle that they can get into, and it can be hard to get them out of that cycle. And I, I definitely agree. Uh, pulmonary rehabilitation um, really can can be life changing. It it may not uh, cure the disease, but I think it empowers patients to take control of their symptom and be able to get to the point where they can get out and and maybe start exercising with um, some support again. I really have to give give a hand to the the people who run these programs, the pulmonary rehab specialist and respiratory therapist because uh, really has helped so many patients. I, I find also, I, I don't know if you see the same thing, that um, patients who go to pulmonary rehab, they meet other patients like them, and they see that they're not alone. Mm-hmm. I think it's a great support group. I've heard patients give each other ideas about oxygen and about tubing and cords and doing this and that, and so I think that it's a it's, it is. It's a, it's a nice social network for them uh, uh, to feel like they're not isolated and the only one with the disease. But about right. 10, 10 years ago, we had very, very few pulmonary rehab centers, and they were they were all closing because there were all these reimbursement and access issues. And I'm not entirely sure what changed, but in the last three, four years, it. Throughout the state, we've had more and more pulmonary rehab centers open up. Patients have access. They don't have to wait six months to get in. And then I agree with you. The actual maintenance uh, can be can be instrumental in keeping that patient on track. Yep, I agree. I think we all have patients with ITF who become who, who will be stable for a while, and then they become more short of breath. They might complain of more dyspnea. They just might get maybe reduced exercise tolerance. Um, we talked before about not always focusing on the lung as the, as the reason why this is happening. Do you find that when patients get worse that it's always their IPF, or, or how do you approach a patient with IPF whose dyspnea who is worsening? Well, first of all, because of acute exacerbations, as part of once they get the diagnosis, we let them know, like, if you have any shortness, you know, worsening of your shortness of breath, we want to see you. So we will overbook those patients if they have acute shortness of breath. Um, we have a nurse practitioner who's here that can also help us see patients during the day uh, that have acute worsening of their breathlessness. I don't think it's always their lungs. I don't think it's always, it's not always disease progression. It's not always an acute exacerbation. It may be aspiration. These patients do get infected sometimes. We do see pneumonia. Again, we talked about um, coronary artery disease. Right. I, I definitely agree with that. I guess one other thing that 
I don't see so much here because my my patients tend to be very advanced, but I know that sometimes when patients are overweight or obese, their body habitus can be contributing to some shortness of breath. Do you see things like that occurring as well? Yeah, I actually saw that today. So there was somebody who had been seen um, uh, several weeks ago for shortness of breath, and the FCC was down, and we said, well, we'll do these things, and, you know, let's try and sort out what's going on. And then when uh, the patient came back today, we looked, and what had happened was it was the weight had gone up, and you could see proportionally as the weight had gone up, the FCC had gone down, and we're like, you actually gained more weight than 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 we thought you'd gained, you know? So, um, and I think that that was probably driving this person's breathlessness. So I, we do see a lot of obesity, and I do think that that also plays a role in, in especially these patients that have fibrotic lungs at the bases, they don't need any more resistance. Um, and I think that the obesity does give them that extra resistance to make them more breathless. And it's hard in ITF, right? Because um, in addition to the shortness of breath, patients are also tired, and there's a lot of fatigue that they complain about. It's really difficult to tease out how much is due to their dyspnea and how much is due to the fact that they're working really hard to try to deal with this uh, debilitating disease. I'm hoping you could give me some advice as to how how we all can better manage or help our patients better manage or reduce their fatigue. Yeah, I think, you know, we talked about obstructive sleep apnea, so that may be playing a role, and so we'll look for that. Pulmonary rehab, um, has been shown to help with that to give people more energy. So I think that that's great. Um, and then if there are other uh, nutritional, sometimes we have them go to nutrition for nutritional support. Um, and then sometimes it's their medications. Like sometimes patients come in with these huge lists of medications and there's actually medications on there that are causing fatigue. So I think there's um, multiple things that we, we can look at to make sure uh, that we're addressing anything that's reversible for the fatigue that they are having. And then how do you deal with the, the depression that's, that's so common in our, our patient population? Yeah, I mean, depression and anxiety um, are, are, we know from uh, the literature, are undertreated. Um, we actually are very fortunate to have um, a palliative care nurse who deals with depression and anxiety, and so uh, we'll usually send the patient uh, to her to screen them, make sure that they, you know, is it medication therapy that they need? Do they need counseling? Um, she's got uh, connections then to the community uh, for therapists that can help. Um, so, so that's how we deal with it in our center. And, and how do you deal with that? How do you deal with that at your center? Uh, we're very fortunate that we also have uh, been able to have palliative care specialists join our team. And so between letting our appointments just run long and we chronically run late, um, mm-hmm. having our own ILD nurse reach out to patients and then having palliative care uh, get involved early rather than later, uh, I, I hope that we're able to, to work on the depression and anxiety. So palliative care, I think we've gotten a little ahead of ourselves. We're talking about palliative care here, but I'm not sure that everybody knows what that means. What do you mean by palliative care? I mean help with symptom management. And so just like depression and anxiety, if there are other symptoms that we are not adequately managing, um, we ask our palliative care nurse to help us with these symptoms that we can't quite get under control. So that's part of palliative care. Is palliative care hospice? 
palliative care can lead down the road to hospice when the patient needs that, but palliative care itself is not hospice. Right, and so I think that that's a very important distinction here because I know when I first bring up the concept of palliative care, patients sometimes think I'm giving up on them and wanting to withdraw care because they might have friends with cancer who have palliative care involved and they they have some confusion about all of this. So I find uh, it can be challenging to get over that initial hump of having the patient um, accept palliative care, but it's, I, I try to phrase it such that this is more about symptoms. It's managing the dyspnea. It's managing the fatigue. It's getting support in a way that I, as your physician, aren't able to provide. Is that how you initiate the conversation as well? Yeah, I do as well, and I think we, we actually should rename that symptom management, you know, that as not to... Oh, that would be uh, a lot easier. <laughs> yeah, right? This is what we're going to do. It's symptom management, which is palliative care, but... Um, because of that they do probably have friends or family that have gone through palliative care or hospice by this age, um, that maybe we should rename it symptom management or something that's not, that, that actually defines what we're doing. Right. Right. And I guess this gets into the concept now of supporting the patient and support-centered management. Our patients are really coping with a lot, and really their support systems are so critical to helping them deal with the impact of getting the ITF diagnosis and then facing all that comes with that, both at the time of diagnosis and down the road. How do you work with the patient's caregivers um, so that everybody is able to support both the patient and the caregiver? Do you have any resources that you would recommend? So we have a support group here, and I think that's fantastic. Um, A lot of my patients and their caregivers go both the patients and the caregivers can come up with ideas uh, that they want to talk about, um, and we can get in specialists then, uh, especially for the caregivers, too. Like, there is caregiver burnout. We encourage the caregivers to come to the appointments um, and help keep track of what we're doing and, and what we're recommending, uh, because sometimes, you know, a conversation with a patient may be just too much information at one period of time, but if there's somebody else listening and writing things down, that may be helpful. Um, but I think our support group has been really great to uh, support not only uh, the patient but the, the caregiver. So getting an IPF diagnosis is difficult. How do you think that healthcare providers can best support patients in actively participating in this process? Um, I think that it takes a lot of time, and I know that we're all very busy, and so I think it's a team uh, that needs to – uh, be involved. So I reach out to the referring uh, physician um, or the primary care doctor that's referred them. We have our own nurse practitioner, like I said. Uh, nursing has been trained to help these patients. I think our respiratory therapists and all the way through pulmonary rehabilitation, but it's a group effort to support these patients in their journey. Uh, I think that's definitely true. And, you know, I I, I lay awake at night thinking about certain patients, and sometimes when I, when I do that, I'll, the next morning I'll just call the patient to check in and let them know I was thinking about them, or I'll, I'll send them a, just a, a message through the electronic medical record just to check in and let them know, because even just, even if I'm not able to cure their disease, I think letting the patient know that, some, that we're here for them and that they have this access to us and that we're 
even if we're not with us, we're, we're actively thinking about how to best help them um, can really mean a lot. We have something similar with the electronic medical record where they can actually portal through and send us tasks, and I think that that's uh, – they have questions that come up, and I think that that's a, a nice way to, to show them that you're there as well, but I think being there for the patients is that they know that you're there and you care about their uh, journey is important. Now, now, what about community doctors? You mentioned working with the community doctors and co-managing. We do a lot of that as well. Uh, because we'll have patients who are hours away and some some time. Um, how, do, how do you find that goes with the co-managing of medications or if the patient gets hospitalized? Yeah, so I think with the patients referred, um, and we've seen them for the first time, that reaching out to the referring provider um, is very helpful because it opens up the hey, I want to work with you and let me know what I can do to help this patient or help you when you run into trouble with this patient or symptoms. Um, and so I think always making that phone call to the referring uh, provider is important. And that's exactly how we handle it, too. And I, I find that um, sometimes opening the line of communication with the phone call makes it easier than for the next patient as well, where uh, that, that doctor knows you. They have your cell mm -hmm. number, they give you a call, and just care gets improved for, for everybody. And I, I'm finding some of our referring physicians are more a lot more comfortable handling ILD in the community, which mm -hmm. makes my job a lot easier because once they, once they come to us and we either confirm or, or render the diagnosis, if, if their community doctor is able to handle the medications and is comfortable um, with with using the antifibrotics or uh, working on working on all of the things we just talked about, I think that that will benefit the patients the most. Wow, we just got through a ton of material. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Olson. Well, thank you, Dr. Herzog, for having me. This was a great discussion. I, I really I really enjoyed this one. Since this is our final podcast in this series, we'd like to thank you all for listening. We hope you have enjoyed learning about the various parts of the diagnostic journey in IPF with us. Thank you also to our expert guests who have provided their invaluable perspectives, Dr. Marilyn Glassberg, Dr. Paul Noble, and Dr. Amy Olson. You can learn more about recognizing and diagnosing IPF by visiting www.insightsinipf.com and downloading the Rad Round UIP to IPS app in the iTunes Store or Google Play Store. If you want to catch up on the previous episodes, you can listen to them on www.insightsinipf.com and your preferred podcast app. Be sure to stay tuned for more IPF-related podcasts coming out later this fall.